Good evening. You are listening to a Rattledgen Broadcasting Premier Podcast TV party tonight. I'm your host, the man did reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And tonight we continue our journey from the corner to the deuce as we examine all the great works of young David Simon. We are looking at Homicide, Life on the Street, The Corner, and now we're on season three of The Wire, simply the greatest show in the history of television. Wouldn't you say Juicy J? Oh, my goodness. Not only may this be the best show ever, but this might be my favorite season of mm. the best show ever. I really Contro- like this season. Controversial. This one doesn't have, Ziggy's, this doesn't have Ziggy's dick in it. <laughs> oh ziggy's dick oh ziggy's dick. Uh, i almost went quantum leap there for a second and i was like oh no wait a second he's referencing the previous season mark <laughs> has no idea about no quantum leap that's okay yeah go ahead mark quantum leap <laughs> <laughs> so all right uh this season we are looking at uh politics 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 oh as, yeah um What's his face? Mel Brooks used to say. Uh, season three is really like the second half of season one. It's the continued rise and fall of the Barksdale organization, but it also introduces Marlowe and this Marlowe Stansfield organization. We get a brief glimpse of Snoop and we get a little bit of Chris Partlow. Um, this is the big gang war that happens between uh, Stansfield and Barksdale. Avon Barksdale comes home from prison this season. Uh, Stringer's been running it all uh, all of season two. And at the end of it, he got in on Prop Joe's package. And uh, <laughs> he, boy, did he get some of his package. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, did he ever. Uh, but they had to share territory in order for that to happen, which because Avon didn't realize what Stringer was doing, he, he called in Brother Mozone to run... Uh, cheese played by Method Man and his peoples off of the Boxdale territory, off, off them corners, yeah. And um, then there was some trickery that involved Omar, which then got Omar to shoot Brother Mozone. <laughs> and then he was like, Yeah, I don't care, <laughs> you've got the wrong man, yeah, you're just lying to live. I've met peace with my god, and then uh, and then Omar turned into a donkey, <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> The look it's on Omar's crazy. face when he's calling the police, by the way, it's priceless. Just Yeah, somebody been shot, <laughs> just rolling his eyes. <laughs> I'm dumb, sorry. So yeah, he was totally manipulated into shooting Brother Mozone. And now, um, you know, Avon told Stringer, look, handle it the way you're going to handle things. Share, share territory with Joe, but when I come home, shit's going to change. Well, this season, shit, he comes home. Um. At the end of season two, after the conclusion of the court case, Daniel's got his wish. He got his unit turned into a major case squad. They had the picture of Prop Joe and Stringer talking. 
So they've been, so when we pick up season three, they are trying to get a wire on Stringer and Prop Joe's people. I think they're focusing on Prop Joe at this point. And they're hoping to, if they can take down one guy, they'll promote the right guy or the wrong guy, as it were, and then get a right. wire up on him. Uh, this leads to the infamous dog fighting scene with Method Man. Oh, <laughs> somebody killed my dog. Somebody tell us about your dog. <laughs> Some cold motherfuckers. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the murder rates are climbing, and this leads into the politics of the season. We are introduced to Councilman Carcetti. We are we get a closer look at the mayor's organization. Uh, Daniel's wife, Daniel's wife Marla, is taking a run in a council seat. We get a, a look at that. We don't really get to meet Yunetta. Like we see her here and there throughout the season, but she doesn't really do much of anything. She's just sort of described as sort of a hump councilwoman. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the this is the season where it's mostly about Carcetti trying to gain favor with the uh, police chief so that he can make a run at the mayor. And there's a great bit of manipulation this season as he tries to get uh, another black council member to run so just so he can peel votes off the black mayor. And as the white guy in the race, take advantage. Politics, politics, politics. Mm-hmm. But Jesse, and this is where I want to start tonight. The best part of this season, really the key feature of this season, one of the reasons why it's not my favorite, because we just we talked about last season being my favorite, the, the port season. This is a close second. And sometimes in in the years that I've lived and watched the show, it was my first favorite. Hamsterdam. Oh, Hamsterdam. Drug mm. legalization. I didn't legalize drugs, Jesse. That's I right. I just elected not to enforce the rules. Exactly. Exactly. They, in order to keep the murder rate down in the Western District, Major Bunny Colvin, rope Bunny Colvin, um, <laughs> he, uh, he identifies three vacant uh apartment areas three vacant blocks of vacant homes and says these are designated drug areas you can deal drugs as long as you're there's no violence and they proceed to do so over the course of season three and what do you know the murder rate drops Mm -hmm. go figure Right. right but at what cost jesse at what cost all right yeah, I think that is probably why this sticks out as my favorite so far. And I should say so far, mm-hmm. because uh, I haven't had a chance to finish season four yet. So, and uh, you know, it, that's still on the plate. But um, this experiment that Major Colvin does is extremely interesting and it's great to watch it unfold, not only with the politics side of things, but with the effect that it has on the communities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get to watch like what seems to be a, a great turnaround. Hey, crimes dropped, but then you go into Hamsterdam and you start looking around and you start seeing some of the stuff. Um, he's friends. Is it a deacon or he's friends with somebody in the church? And yeah. The, some sort of high church. Yeah, by the way, right. did you know that that's like an actual drug dealer? Like, have you the, listened to the podcast or listened to or watch any of the documentaries where they talk about how they use locals? I do know they use locals, but I didn't know that the, yeah, the preacher or yeah, the, he's the church like an, guy. He's oh, like okay. an ex-drug dealer. 
which is hilarious. Oh, wow. Well, I tell yeah, you what, I mean, of, of all the extras, he does a great job of all the of all the, like the real life people that they use in the wire to, for this and that role. He like I was convinced he was a real actor. He's right. Excellent. So did I. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I had no idea. Um, but yeah, you know, his his confidant in the in the church as he's he's as Colvin's talking to him and saying, yeah, you know, this is this is actually working. This is working for me. He's like, well, let's go take a look. And he goes down there. He's what like, the, okay, well, what the hell did you do here, Bunny? Yeah, what what are you? Where's the electricity? Where are the where's the running water? You know, and he's got a great point. Like you mm-hmm. brought all these people to one spot, they stay in this one spot, and not only that, like watching the effect of what he is doing on the drug operations themselves. Like there's no need for runners anymore. Right. There's no need for you know that that all starts to trickle down where. There's just kids hanging around, not going to school and just screwing around because they don't have anything to do. Well, let's talk um, about that for a second, because the season opens with Carver. Carver left uh, Daniel's squad after him and Herc felt like, you know, as they put it, like they were their mules. They're like, we're going to go to the Western and they're they're in the Western uh, drug enforcement unit. Mm-hmm. And so it opens with them, you know, in this big ass operation where they're using all these cars and a helicopter to what grab a nine year old kid as he runs with drugs. Right. That was that was the big operation. And Colvin even says that to him. He was like, you use like half my my resources for what? You know, like what what, what charge you have on them? You know, it was just, what was it? Herc said, like being an asshole in a public area. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but it's meant to illustrate the futility of. <clears throat> drug enforcement that there's a lot of expenditure <clears throat> there's a lot of expenditure for not a lot of gain you know the the juice isn't worth the squeeze as one of my co-workers would say yeah and so carver carver has a really great arc in season three because he starts out as all like semper fi about the whole thing he's like i am here to jack up children and take right. their drugs <laughs> that is what i'm here for yeah. Like there's a bit later on when they're tr- when when Colvin gets the idea of the free zones, as he calls them, Amsterdam, um, he goes to Carver and he says, get me the drug lieutenants, uh, get me the local drug lieutenants of all the different operations. And <laughs> and, he, and Carver's like, I don't know who any of these people are. What are you talking about? Yeah, I think what is uh, this? Yeah. Like, he was like, he was like, I, I was like, I was just supposed to jack up people, not take a census. Right, and right. you could just see Carver. You could just see Colvin's face. It's like everything about you is terrible. Yeah, he <laughs> starts to realize mm-hmm. that Carver is just Useless. yeah about one thing. He's yeah, and it's good that he has the sit down with him to explain to him about what good policing is versus being a soldier. I think is what he says. He, he has compares a lot. being a. Yeah, he has a line. I'll, I'll let you finish what you were saying, but he has a line. It's really important that I that I get this out. He was like, "Who are you going to talk to when the shit goes down? You have no, you don't know anybody. You, you don't know, know who these you people don't know are." Anybody. He's like, "You know, when it comes to being a supervisor, you know your stuff, but you are not policing. You're soldiering." Right. And right. Go ahead. I'll let you. I'll let you say the next. Well, line. and you 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 said exactly what I was going to say. Like mm-hmm. this is something where. Carver has to realize there's a lot more mental uh, ability that goes into policing than just soldiering. Mm-hmm. Right. But what is the, re- I mean, if you know the rest of it off the top of your head, go ahead and say it. I when don't The problem with fighting a war is that it makes everyone your enemy. Right. Right. 
And that is what's happened with Hurt and Carver. Daniels makes a very similar point, I think, in season four or five, where for decades <clears throat> they've allowed the police to become militarized. And because they're militarized, they're not police anymore. They're soldiers. What do soldiers do? Kill the enemy. I mean, that's a, that's a way big oversimplification. There are obviously soldiers who get to know the locals and do like social service work, for lack of a better phrase. But the, the bigger point that they're making, the more general point, is they have been taught and they have been raised in the Baltimore police in this era that the drug dealers, the people in the community, these children that are out there, they're the enemy. And they are treated as such. And they are not talked to. They are not they are not gone to for any kind of information. And so there's this wall between the police and the locals. The locals don't want to talk to the police. They see the police as the enemy. They are, they, they are an invading force, you know? Um, right. And then the police don't see the locals as locals, as community members. They just see them as, I think Carver described it as like people, as uh, combatants in occupied territory. Mm -hmm. um, right. <clears throat> Colvin is about saving the Western District. He's about saving the community. And he and there's a tacit recognition. And this is why I, I've been always been a proponent of drug legal, at least drug decriminalization. Sure. Um, I'm all for, for definitely some of the harder stuff for like prescription drug programs, prescription heroin, that sort of thing. And that, there's a whole other topic we can get into at a later date. But there are all kinds of harm reduction methods for dealing with the drug trade. And Colvin, at least on some level, recognizes that people are going to want People are always going to want to do drugs. That's not going to change. I think Chris Rock said that you could take all the drugs off the planet. Somebody will invent something new. Like he said yeah. it more funny than that. It was something about a baby's bottle and, you know, that, that motherfucker will smoke it. Um, but but that's the point. People are in pain. Not everybody has the spoons, the the equipment, the, the mental uh, fortitude to deal with their pain and so they mask it they mask it with drugs and alcohol that's just life so rather than treat people who are sick people who are in need as enemy combatants colvin said look let's just get them away from the rest of the community that's worth saving and bring them to this yeah. area that is basically dead which is hilarious when you think about it because at the end of it when when this all comes to a head and they figured out what's you know what's happened and you have rawls going this motherfucker he's legalized drugs like don't actually his his line is actually don't you understand you idiot he's legalized drugs he's like I didn't legalize it I just elected to not enforce it I just ignored it <laughs> I just ignored it right that's some equivocating motherfucker right there <laughs> um, but uh, it at the end of it they, they the mayor has the entire vacant lot like bulldozed oh yeah there's nothing left it's like. Uh... You know, Bubs's line is like, it's like they took a big eraser to it. Yep. Um, you know, one of the things that just kind of hit me as we were talking about this whole thing, what you mentioned the militarization of the police. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> when you look at the whole Hamsterdam thing, what was the one thing that d brought it all down? The drug dealers and everything that, uh, you know, and the users Everything was kind of working there. I mean, every once in a while, they'd have an issue, specifically a body that showed one up. Murder that, that took one place. murder that showed up. <laughs> but the person that decided to bring it all down was Herc. Herc hit a breaking breaking point, and so it they was all did, really. Though. 
I can't huh? remember the guy that looks like Frankenstein in that group, but he was well, also yeah, like he ready to pissed. explode. Yeah, he was pissed most of the time, but it mm -hmm. was Herc that finally was like, "Fuck this!" You're, you, you, I think Carver asked him to help move the body in order to make sure that you know it, there wasn't a light shown on this. And Herc's like, "I'm not <laughs> doing that." And then finally, something broke with him. But the point I'm trying to make is that mm -hmm. it was the police. Yeah. I think Herc and the rest, like Frankenstein, Herc and uh, were just used to, and they love it. They loved you know, banging on these dealers and locking them up, putting the club, putting the cuffs on them and going to war. I am not here to talk badly about law enforcement. Well, sure. It's partially because I work with them, but also right. in part because not every law enforcement person is a bad person. But any, I think any position of authority, whether it be law enforcement or uh, any, any thing where you wield even a modicum of power lends itself to bullying and bullies i think people i think people who have a need to exert power over others are definitely drawn to careers like that not everybody obviously and you know right. and people who are like that may end up in other another places so it, it, you know it's not a complete one-to-one -one. but i think herc and that group is a really great example of the ones that are absolutely drawn to positions of power because they they just have a need you know, they they have their own trauma that they're dealing with, and they need and they feel the need to express it by beating on children. Right. You know, be, um, and and that's that that's unless, what it is. Unless there's I mean, a computer game involved, you know, <laughs> hey, let's get the kids on the make a face. Look what they're doing. <laughs> you got one that does asses. That's a great. <laughs> that's a great line. Oh, so good. Um, I want I want to go back to Carver for one second, and and I want to dovetail this right back to where we started with the Deacon. Um, because you brought up how the entire system of dealing drugs breaks down. Once you don't need lookouts, once you don't need hoppers, once you don't need runners, all you have is the one guy who's got the drugs. Yeah. And he sells the drugs, he takes the money, he sells the drugs, takes the money. It's it's so funny because we talked about with season two, the collapse of the working class. Once you have either shipped the jobs overseas or replaced everybody with a robot, your entire fucking local civilization breaks down. Right. Everybody that works in the warehouse or in the factory is now unemployed. All the people around them in the service industry, the people who work at gas stations, the people who work in restaurants, they're now out. They, they, no one's spending money in those places because they don't have any because they're out of a job. You know, now you've got kids going hungry, going to school. And the teachers are having to deal like you just like you start to see once the major component that employs the people that keeps the whole thing running evaporates, just breaks down, disappears. It ripples out into the rest of the community. Right. And you see it with drug dealers, which is great. What a, what a comparison. So once they're allowed to deal drugs, you have all of these kids that were caught up in this very organized system just feral children essentially just roaming free yeah and carver over the course of season three goes from military captain to police he starts recognizing that this is happening and he has a crisis of conscience as it were and he gets the drug dealers to pay out essentially unemployment right he's like which by the way 
best and most accurate description of unemployment that I've ever heard on a TV show. <laughs> well, you know what? You you actually work at unemployment. So you want to quick say what you're talking about? Well, a lot of people, uh, even some of the higher mm -hmm. government officials think that uh, you as a worker pay into mm -hmm. unemployment. You don't. It is the employers that do. Employers mm -hmm. pay into this insurance fund. And when you become unemployed, if you lost your job as to no fault of your own, you can get some assistance from that fund. Right. Every other time I've heard it described from anybody else on a show or whatever, it is always, I paid into that, you know, and mm -hmm. granted unemployment doesn't come up, especially the unemployment fund or whatever, doesn't come up too often, but I love to see that Carver understood it. I'm so glad. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> Good stuff. So, so first he makes the, the, the drug lieutenants that are down there pay out, pay out to the kids and he uses to buy a basketball net. Um, which also leads to one of my favorite lines of season three, where Cuddy, we, we need to talk about Cuddy, Cuddy from the cut, um, walks up to Carver and he says something about like the kids and Carver sort of looks at him and he's like, is that just like a drive by fuck you? Or are you actually going to help out here? Curbside is what it was. Is this a curbside fuck you? Are you going to help? <laughs> and yeah. Cuddy leading into his big arc in seasons four and five takes on some of the, uh, some of the drug kids to teach them how to box. And cut, you know, um, I, I want to clean up with, with Carver and the, and the Deacon, and then we can dovetail back into Covey, cut, Cuddy. Sure. But um, one of the things that happens towards the end of season three is for a while there, it's just drug dealing. It's just sort of that antagonism between the cops and the drug dealers. And, you know, you would they would go back to it periodically. Um, there's, a, there's a great bit in the beginning where, the you know, a handful of kids try it out to see if it's a trap or not. And nobody knows that they're there. So they're just like, we're going to leave. There's no customers. Yeah. And they have to like run around with the, with the paddy wagon and grab, <laughs> and grab junkies off the street. And be like, I hear that WMD is the bomb. That's <laughs> <laughs> the old, old, old white man saying that. It was yes. hilarious. You know who he was, right? That's what's his nuts from season one. Yeah. Yeah. I recognized him. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. He got bumped. He got bumped back to the road. Um, to a beat cop at a homicide a at, the end of, yep. at the end of season one. And we don't really see him in season two. And then he pops up here driving the paddy wagon. And he has a degree. He has a great line too, where he's just like, this is the best gig I ever had. He loves it. <clears throat> he absolutely loves what he's doing. And you that call, influences, I think, uh, what happens at the end here. <laughs> yes. So. so anyway, so yeah, they had to go grab a bunch of drug dealers and like direct them to the drug dealers, you know, and they're like, you know, there they are just hawking their drugs just as loud as can be. Um, but what the deacon figures out and what starts to happen is it's like we've never had every single problem in this city concentrated in one area. Just one. Right. Sorry. Something just. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> to ask her what that. Oh, OK. Momentarily. Anyway. <laughs> momentarily distracted. Yeah. I got it. So, sorry. Um, <laughs> so anywho. Uh, yeah, they like we have every problem we have in the city is concentrated into these three areas, and this is talking about like needle exchanges, condom right. depots, you know, right. like every social social ailment, right, is right there to deal with, and so like social workers converge on the place. Right, you want to try to make an impact to actually curb mm -hmm. these problems. Here you go. Here they all are in and one that, little spot. That's the brilliance of it because on the one hand, it was done as a as a crime measurement. Uh, it was essentially let's get all the drug dealers here. Let's get all the drug addicts here. 
they'll leave they'll, they'll leave he it was about getting the drug dealers off the corners around the neighborhood and just focusing them in one area and when that happens you see over the course of the season you see people like painting their stoops you see people sweeping you see what looks like a community again oof we got to talk about bunk and omar by the way um but uh you start to see the community come back to life at least briefly um, and so Colvin doesn't even realize what he's done because he was just about lowering the murder rate and making some safe areas of the city. He doesn't even realize what he what, what he did was provide a place for easy access to the most vulnerable people in the city to have reach out, to have you know social workers come in and work with them. And it all comes down because mayor the mayor gets a visit by the federal government that basically says this is now 20 years ago okay uh the wire season three debuted uh in 2004 2004 we're we're better now than we were 20 years ago but we're still not you still say drug decriminalization to people and everyone gets the willies oh yeah Yeah, there's definitely still resistance to this it's better harm reduction has taken some degree of root but not a lot and at that time, they're standing over the mayor basically like, and we will cut all your funding ever from the federal government. You will get yeah. nothing. Good day, sir. Half a billion dollars. Yeah, because there is a, I mean, when you, like, Colvin has, like, a stack of letters from the community going, thank you for this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those deals where, and this will be the last thing I say, and then we'll move on. It's one of those deals where they realize they've got a great thing going here, but it's scary. Because for a hundred years, drug addicts were the enemy. Right. You think about not to go off on a tangent about the history of drug laws, but you know, I think it's the Harrison Narcotic Act that legal that um, criminalized opiates was done on behalf of like white women post Civil War who got addicted to morphine. You know, um, the marijuana laws were very much targeted against Mexicans and blacks, specifically blacks in the jazz movement. The history of drug criminalization and drug laws has a lot, not everything, but a lot to do with persecution of various minorities. And also, if you ever wanted to get, you know, middle class white people to vote for you, make crime your issue. How do you make crime your issue? Attack the drug dealers, you know? And so... And then what starts to happen is you have a military that doesn't have an enemy, but they've got all this equipment. They got to do something with it. Right. Right. That's <laughs> why you have police forces with fucking Humvees. Yeah. Like you ever see some of the documentary footage, um, especially from like when, you know, the NWA, not the National Wrestling Alliance, the other one, um, <laughs> the other NWA <laughs> would let you know, or Ice-T or something would like talk about Crenshaw and Compton and all of that. And you see fucking mil- like. Po- po- military vehicles with battering rams but painted police oh my god they got that shit from the military so it, it's it's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle of first persecution and then militarization and that's yeah. how you end up with guys like herc who at the end and this is what i wanted to say to, to end this bit who at the end doesn't know any better that's all he's ever known and right. who's to blame him he grew up in a world where drug dealers were the enemy. 
He became a cop and was reinforced that drug dealers are the enemy. And then he is promoted and uh, given raises by going after the, like he did a good job, you know, when, when you, and so when you turn that on its head and from the federal government on down, you have people going, this is not the way we do business. Yeah. This is not how things are done. We don't we don't decriminalize drugs. We don't we don't legalize drugs. We don't uh, we don't try to treat drug dealers. We imprison them. We beat on them. <laughs> That's how things are done. And then you know somebody tries to say, but but what if there's another way? And they're like, nope, we're not hearing that shit. Right. right. Not for the last hundred years. We're not. We're not starting now. It is hard to make change. Reform, right. Lamar. Reform. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Slow train coming. Um, I'll let you pick Cuddy or Omar and Bunk. Because if I don't talk about either, if I don't talk about Omar and Bunk, I'm going to be mad at myself. Okay, well, let's do Omar and Bunk first, then. Okay. So, um, last season, I think Omar got with Kimmy and Tasha, and they started um partnering up to rob people, and they're continuing right. to do so this season, which leads to Tasha getting bolt in the head. Um, I think at some point or other, Stringer picks up on Omar's scent again. Oh, it's because oh, there's a bit that where they keep going after Avon's people and Kimmy and Tasha are like, what the F? And then I think yeah. Tasha gets killed in the process. And so mm-hmm. Kimmy's, so after a while, Kimmy's like, if we don't start going after some other people, I'm leaving. And so they do yeah, for a while. She's in it for the money. She's not yeah. in it for uh, the so, war. There's a bit there where there where I think that there's even a scene where um, they come in with like a bag of drugs and money, and the Kimmy's like, "Eastside wasn't ready for, wasn't ready for us." <laughs> um, and th- so that happens for a while, but for whatever reason, they pick up on the scent of Omar again, and um, they go after him. And this is where the two idiots um, are sitting on Omar, and it happens to be on a Sunday. Oh, the Sunday truce. Yes. Oh man, on a church Sunday. A poor granny's crown, church crown, <laughs> a, ch- a bona fide cuddle woman. <laughs> Man, yeah, they're they're tailing Omar, and Omar's in his Sunday best, and he's taking his dear old grandma to church, and he's putting her in the cab, and they fucking shoot him. And and there's a whole bit. I don't mean to laugh because it's really sad, actually. Um, but there's a whole bit after that where Omar's like freaking out about it. He's like, "That yeah. woman think I work in a cafeteria." <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know what I'm doing. You know, oh, she's like, "Why man. are people shooting at us?" Um, and then he's like, "This shit got to end." And that is when um, Brother Mozone comes back to town, um, and him and Omar team up to tail Stringer. And I think they are at some point given Stringer. Uh, it's it's Avon that gives it up to M- Brother Mozone. But I'm I'm actually getting away from the central thing. So there's a bit with Carver's group where they do a drug deal, it goes bad, and uh, Dozerman gets shot, and he loses his Dozerman gun. His gun ends up in the street somewhere. Right. And so Bunk gets assigned Tasha's murder. That's why these things are linked. Bunk gets assigned Tasha's murder, but he can't work it because the priority is to get Dozerman's gun, which, just so people understand, they have to find a 9 millimeter handgun in Baltimore somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, there's a point where Bunk is at on a computer and he goes, I'm in the haystack looking for this gun because that's pretty much what it is. It's a yeah. it's a needle in a haystack. Yeah, he's told that he's like he may be maybe be held by a guy named Peanut and he like searches Peanut in the computer. <laughs> there's, there's like a like hundred of them. <laughs> Damn. 
Bunk, Bunk spends a majority of the season looking for this stupid gun. Um, but he's also trying to work Tasha's murder. And this is when he goes to see Bruiser. And Bruiser tells him Omar was there. This was Omar's thing. And that's what happened. This was the gunfight. It was Omar, his people. And he doesn't, I don't think he knew it was the Avon group, but the Barksdale people. But he was just like, but definitely Omar was there because Omar grew, Omar grew up in that neighborhood. And Bunk's trying to get his story locked in. And Jay pulls up. He's like, go find the gun. So by the time... Excuse me, fine citizen. <laughs> would you happen to know where this gun would be? Right. Oh, no? Okay. <laughs> and so... And so... Um, Bunk, you know, finally gets... He does a whole thing, and he gets Jay to get off his ass for a while, and he goes to work Tasha's murder. But by that point, Omar has gone to see Bruiser. And he's like, telling tales, Bruiser? And Bruiser's yeah. like, no, sir. Not me. Mm -hmm. And so... When Bunk, um, Bunk goes to see Tasha's people, and they eventually, he eventually ends up seeing Omar. And Omar goes, to, compare season one where Omar was cooperative with what a dick he is to, to Bunk this time around. Oh, when yeah. he has no reason to cooperate, and he's just Omar, what an asshole he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they aren't getting along. And I thought it was real interesting when he does finally have his conversation with him about how... Bunk knew who he was from school. Yeah. And you know, they've had they had a I wouldn't say a history, but he knew he knew who mm -hmm. he was and he knew the neighborhood he grew up in. Um it was, they, made it was that, they made that connection in season one because you will remember he was just like, Didn't you play that game with the stick? He was like lacrosse. It's like, yeah, that's oh, the yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's that's right. why he said he said I was a few years ahead of you at Edmondson. Mm. Um so yeah, so he goes to so he goes to talk to Omar, and Omar's only gonna talk to him to say Stop sniffing around my people. No one's going to talk to you. At which point, Bunk loses his fucking mind. Yeah. And he gives one of the great monologues in television history. It starts off with, I was a few years ahead of you at Edmondson. And it gets into, no matter, he starts talking about, like, the hard cases in his neighborhood that were looking out for him that, you know, he wanted to be one of them. He wanted to be a roughneck. But they were like, a homeschool boy. This is not the place for you. And he didn't know that they were looking out for him at the time because he wanted to be a cool kid, too. You know, right. it's not it's not not cool to be you know successful and you know <laughs> nerdy, um, right. but but they were saying that no no this is not the place for you schoolboy, and he said no matter what kind of people we had in the neighborhood no matter how hard it got we had a community, and now all we have are bodies, and it's because of predatory motherfuckers like you. That line hits me so hard every single time. Like, I don't have a way of personally resonating, you know, relating to it. I mean, yeah, I grew up in a slightly rough neighborhood, but um, I not like that. Not the way he's describing it. Right. And I certainly don't have any way to relate to, you know, all we have are bodies. But um, the power of his delivery in, in that scene, it's so good. And Omar's reaction to it after he walks away, where he you see it's one single tear and he spits and just drools down his his chin. I don't know how much of that was direction or how much of that was Michael K. White being a brilliant actor. Right. But I mean, like, mwah, sex chef's kiss. It's yeah. it's really it is a brilliantly delivered monologue, and Michael K. White's reaction to it is every bit as brilliant. Yeah. You could tell that <clears throat> you know. Omar, as comfortable as he is being Omar, uh, you know, he's he's fine robbing people. Mm -hmm. um, 
the especially drug dealers. <laughs> what is <laughs> it? No what she says to him? That. Conscience do cost. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. When when Bunk brings up the fact that, you know, there was kids running around acting mm -hmm. like him, you know, I think that definitely struck a chord in Omar. Like, you know, I, I think that he's comfortable being himself, but he doesn't want somebody else. He definitely doesn't want somebody else being in his shoes or sh following about, in his footsteps. Think about Omar's character. Think about the courtroom scene in season two where, you know, he's like, we're both we're both preying on the community right by attacking in our own way the drug trade you're a lawyer but you set drug dealers free i rob drug dealers we are both thriving on the misery of this community right and but i think as long as he could focus on drug dealers like you're saying he was fine when he got made to look at the damage he was causing to the community because it's one thing that you know shoot Mike Mike in his hind pots. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one it's one thing to rob Avon and his people. It's a whole other thing when someone happens to point out that you're destroying the perfectly innocent people in this community as well. Right. The ones that are not drug dealers, the ones that are not drug addicts, drug users, you are hurting children. You are hurting this community. Yeah. And, you know, and he's like, every man, like, he equivocates by saying, every man must have a code. I never point my gun at no citizen. You didn't have to, Omar. You destroyed this community by being a part of this in your own way. Right. And when Bunk right. points that out to him, that's when he kind of has like a mental collapse about it. And he goes yeah. to Butchie. Go, blam, Butchie. And he's like, yeah. I, I, I can't live with myself. Like, I, <laughs> right. Bunk said something and I can't sleep now. And mm -hmm. Butchie's like, what's the plan here? guy who rubs robs drug dealers <laughs> right <laughs> what are you gonna do um yeah. and then and that's when he figures out that the way to at least make it up like he's not gonna give him he's obviously not gonna give himself up he's not gonna talk about what who and what killed tasha but he's more than happy to go get dozerman's gun back go and get that gun and, and what she does and that's how he makes peace with bunk which i think is kind of sweet <laughs> that's good yeah. it's a good arc for both of those two and mm -hmm. you know um yeah yeah it's omar's a great character i mean mm -hmm. my goodness i i can't tell you uh we, we just did a comic book podcast and omar came up just because of him being such a great character we compared him uh it wasn't me either it wasn't the fact that i was doing these podcasts it was somebody else that was on the podcast that brought mm -hmm. him up so that's how transcendent uh omar yeah. is omar is part of the, the fabric culture. of american culture now if not right you know whatever other international culture knows about the wire like what because what do people know about the wire they know two things omar and she <laughs> we i think we get that i don't i can't remember if we got that last season but i know we got one of those this season oh, he, wasn't that absolutely, drawn out, but... he absolutely says it last season uh i think it's the second season where they get what's his face's bag oh, or so he says she's, she's, okay all right I, he I mean, like, not like he'll by the end of season five, it, he takes 20 minutes to get the whole I was going to say, yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> it is we are. Isaiah Whitlock is ridiculous by the end of season five. <laughs> but I think it's season one where they get Day Day's bag where he's just like, shit, you better tell this motherfucker. Oh. <laughs> Earl, oh, Earl, whatever the fuck his name is, the police commissioner. Um, all right. I'm going to talk about Cuddy real quick. Cuddy from the cut. Um, reform, Lamar. It's about reform. And here we have this guy who just did a nickel 
No, he did a dime, right? It was like 10 years. Uh, actually, I think it was. Well, I could be wrong, but I remember doing the math in my head, thinking mm -hmm. that he's been in there since the 80s. Yeah. Uh, like mid 80s to late 80s or something like that. So it might have been 15. It might have mm -hmm. been 15. But go go ahead. What, he he, he did a, a quite a long length of time in prison. Right. And he's getting out. And, he, you know, he goes through what a lot of people who get out of prison go through, which is the call to your old life, maybe because it's easier, maybe because that's just who you are. That's, you know, you miss it. That's what maybe, you know. Maybe you don't have anything else. Maybe you try. And so he comes out. Um, Avon gives him a package. He tries to get fruit to sell the package for him. Fruit rips him off. That's that's a whole thing. Um, then he's like, well, maybe I'll try to get better and I'll try to get a job and I'll reconnect with my woman. And like the whole world has just moved on without him. So he's like, fuck it. I got nothing. I got nobody. Let me go ahead and go back to doing, you know, go back to soldier work. Um, and he gets to a point where he has fruit in his sights and he can't pull the trigger, at which point he's like, well, I got nobody and I got nothing, but I can't go back to <laughs> I can't go back to killing people. Yeah, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Right. You know what? What probably came easy to him before this is mm -hmm. now something that he it's a line he won't cross. Yeah. Uh, even though, I mean, he had that kid dead to rights. Oh, he yeah. Fruit knew it, too. Square. Yeah. I mean, yeah. shout out square to that fucking actor, man. Fruit looked like he pissed his pants. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, you know, Cuddy has to make a decision like, OK. And, and it's it, it's neat to see somebody go through that arc where they're they tried their best to go back to what they were doing, tried to go back into the the drug game mm -hmm. and decide okay well i'm done and you're thinking oh man well good luck getting out of the drug game he right. just walks up to you know avon and says i'm out all yeah. right you're out good luck avon and, you know and that's the thing about the wire avon's not a bad dude no he's not he just happens no, to I be mean, running a drug organization but right. you know and and he's and we, we got to talk about this he's myopic and he is a, he is myopic about drugs and drug dealing as the police and the mayor's office is about drug legalization right <laughs> <laughs> it is an amazing comparison um i'm just guess i'm just i'm just a gangster i suppose and i want my corners okay <laughs> we found a perfectly good way to do this where everyone makes money and nobody dies but sure um but yeah back to cut i just want to wrap up with cuddy real quick cuddy is a great story i don't always like in rewatches i don't always watch a lot of his scenes but i like his story um, and it yeah. ends with him deciding that in the way to give the way to move forward, the way to give his life purpose is to work with kids and teach them the one thing he knows besides drugs is boxing. Yeah. Become a mentor. Yep. And he has and he has a fairly nice arc over the next two seasons. I like, you know, um, and we'll talk about it when we get to seasons four and five. But Cuddy becomes a much more interesting character uh, over the course of seasons four and five. OK. All right. Let's talk about McNulty. Because this is as much the rise and fall of McNulty uh, as it is the rise and fall of the Barksdale organization. So McNulty is a fucking dog with a bone when it comes to Stringer. Like, oh, yeah. You know, this whole thing started with him recognizing that the, the vast majority of murders were, con were, let's face it, being committed by Weebay and, you know, and, and maybe a little bit of Bird. But uh, poor Weebay. 
<laughs> murders for a sandwich. Um, <laughs> but uh, the vast majority of murders were being committed by the Barksdale organization. He was like, is anyone going to do anything about this? I guess I will. And he becomes like a crusader. And then because he got punished for it, you know, for going outside the lines, he gets thrown on the boat. And so there's a bitterness to, to there's a bitterness to McNulty. But there's also like a condescension. Like he's like, there's a lot that bit that he has with Lester, where he's talking about all the swinging dicks that can do what they do. And there's like, there's not many of them. And Lester's like, Jesus Christ, do you have anything to do but besides be a cop? What do you think is right. going to happen when this case is over? He was like, another yeah. case. You need more than this here, McNulty. Gosh, and, Lester's my favorite man. Oh, Lester has a little. <laughs> you are not worth the skin off my knuckles, Junior. <laughs> oh <laughs> man, I was like, um, yeah, buddy. But uh, <laughs> the other great line when 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 he and McNulty are fighting and McNulty leaves the room, he's like, "Go look at those properties." <laughs> um, <laughs> so good. <laughs> After he's walked away, but um, I wanted to talk about McNulty because. It's not rare you see McNulty be vulnerable. You, you, there's things where, like, when Kima gets shot and he's obviously riddled with guilt. Um, there's times where he feels bad about himself, but not vulnerable. And this season, in dealing with uh, the political consultant, um, D'Agostino or something yeah, like that, yeah. D'Agostino, he has a line about her, yeah. He has a line about her about how like she sees through him. Looks right through me. Yeah. She looked right if she looked right through me, Kima. He because he talks about like, you know, getting stringer. We left this guy on the street. He's probably mocking me. Like he has become up. This isn't about policing anymore. And Daniels even makes this point. He's like, at, at some point, this isn't about policing anymore. This is about respect. This is about your stupid obsession with this one guy as if there's no other crime in this fucking city. Right. This is a personal thing with you now. This isn't about what's best for Baltimore. It's, it's clearly obvious. I mean, at right. the beginning of this, they've got a, a totally different target. This K, this task mm. force has a totally different target. And he's running out, doing things, trying to nail Stringer. He's oh, not fuck. on he, the board. He reinvestigates D'Angelo, which was got written up as a suicide. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, just as a real quick, that line that he delivers to D'Angelo's mother, Brianna, that is a rough listen, man. The one Dude. where he's talking about, like, I don't give a fuck. I, I shouldn't give a fuck uh, anyway. When, he, or, when she says, why did you go to Donnette and not me? He was like, honestly, because you're the one that made him take the years, right? Honestly, I was looking for somebody that might give a shit about the kid. Right. And she right. just fucking crumbles. It's <laughs> just yeah. right there on screen. She was like Drax in fucking Infinity War. Just, you know, <laughs> just went all the pieces. <laughs> um, but that's, a, that's a rough exchange, man. That's, yeah, that's a, to yeah. tell someone's mom you don't really care about this kid <clears throat> yeah yeah and and you know that really is one of the many kind mm -hmm. of building blocks to the fall of the organization just him approaching her with this mm -hmm. uh and, and granted it, it isn't huge but i don't know nothing about it brianna <laughs> no nothing about what avon know yeah. nothing about what avon uh, fucking right. gave himself away right there he knew yeah. um but yeah so mcnulty it isn't until he because he's so obsessed with stringer his obsession with stringer is bigger than everything else around him and then he's made to realize just how small it really is nobody gets through to mcnulty until he goes on those dates with her and he suddenly feels like the most insignificant guy ever yeah he's just the uh, information with dick 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes him realize what Lester was telling him all along, which is you need something. You know, he's not Elena won't take him back. We established that in season two. Good old Callie Thorne. Callie Thorne, baby. Um, (laughs) But um, (laughs) Callie Thorne. We just can we after we're done with from the deuce to the from the corner to the deuce, we just do an entire series of all things Cali Thorn. Oh my goodness. Just an hour of us just just talking about Cali Thorn. Uh, yeah, the yeah, the cameras would be painted white. It's just <laughs> I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> film at eleven. Um anywho. Uh yeah, he's not gonna get back with Elena. Uh, she's she's just not gonna take him back. That's um, so he's trying to move on. But he's moving on as he was until he runs a runs a foul of, of D'Agostino and she's and then he's like, huh, maybe I, I need to be better. Maybe I need I do need something different. I need something more than this. And that's when he seeks out BD. Oh, BD. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, so. <sighs> one of the one of my top moments mm-hmm. from this season has to deal with. McNulty and his love life. Mm-hmm. And it is when he's at the bar. Oh, he's talking to he, Daniels. Yeah, he has he well, he gets drunk. And I mm-hmm. um this is after he's had the conversation with Daniels. He realizes, you know, that well, he gets up to the phone. He grabs the phone, and you know he's he's going to try and make a booty call or something, you know. Yeah, and he's about to call, and he realizes he has nobody to call. And it's yeah. really, really fucking sad because mm-hmm. he just kind of sits there in his drunken state and, and then it all clicks and he's like, shit. He just hangs the phone back up. Um, yeah, I know. I, you know, little, I know a little something about giving too much of your life to one thing to the exclusion of all else. Sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really does. When you suddenly right. turn around, and you're like, oh, I've uh, I've wrecked everything around me. Yikes. <sighs> and and. The thing is, at at one point he's like in a hotel with Kima, and I swear mm-hmm. to goodness he's trying to get laid by Kima, who is not. On no, his team. you think so? <laughs> when they're on the road chasing Bernard, and she's like magic finger, and he she starts talking magic fingers. And he's like, I got. He, he basically makes a comment like, I've got magic fingers, and he just kind of sits back and lays. I swear to goodness, he's trying. With a lesbian. I don't think he was actually trying to get laid. No, I legitimately think that no. he was that desperate to try and do anything to get laid. I feel like he didn't even see her that way. That is, I, I, I have That's watched. I thought too, but I honestly, I've I, watched season three like a hundred times. I've never once picked that up. I I swear that he has got this stink of desperation on him this season. Right. Well, you also he thought the orbital was too any serious. Any kind though. of physical. <laughs> any kind of physical relationship with anybody just Mm -hmm. to have that now they've been friends sure but i mean they're in the hotel together and kima looks at him and is like and can't make out i mean she's laughing it off Mm -hmm. but i honestly think that if she would have said she was game he would have been game well sure he's a dog that's there you go you know solving murders and fucking that's all he's about that's (laughs) the whole point because he's trying to be a little something about He's trying to be about something a little bit more than murders and pussy. And that's a good arc for this guy because yeah. he needs to realize that, okay, there's something else more out there that can make me happy. And well, Daniel tells him after right the last, now. after the final fucking betrayal, like you're done in this unit. Yeah. You're figure done, what, dude. Figure out where you're going to go because I'm not going to keep you. 
And, you know, and at the end, you know, they <laughs> give, give away the ending. Omar and my brother Mozone fucking shoot Stringer. They, they had Stringer dead to rights. Um, they were going to arrest him. They were going to serve the warrant. But <sighs> he by then by that point, he'd been shot full of holes. Um, and that one that one moment that McNulty has. I mean, that's what just like you said, he's obsessed yeah. with Stringer. Could you Stringer imagine, lying there dead. Can and he you looks imagine over a bunk that you have been obsessed with taking down one guy? And when you get there, you finally get right to the. It's like, what do I always say? It's like having the best sex of your life. And right before you come, the girl says, yuck, get off me. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. I, what? And <laughs> he looks over a bunk and he's like, I had him. And he doesn't yeah. know it. He he never. And he's dead. And I, I didn't get the chance to tell him pretty much. It I goes mean, to the futility. To of obs- it goes to the futility of obsession. Yeah. It's just yeah. not. It's not worth it to become that myopic about things and you know that single focused and i you know again that's something that i think spurs mcnulty on to make a decision to be comfortable with the fact that he's not Mm going to be on this squad anymore yep and then he goes back to the western and at the end after all that stuff that colvin said about walk your beat know your post talk to your people people. there there he is flipping his baton talking to the locals the happiest he's ever going to look in this entire five seasons. And that includes yeah. the time he got laid by two Russian prostitutes. <laughs> That's oh, right. me and the wife laughed at that one. That was hilarious. <laughs> the fuck am I, I can't perjure myself. <laughs> Motherfucker, you've broken so many laws. <laughs> um, let's talk about the, uh, the fall of the, the fall of Avon and Stringer. Um, it's this season where he's talking to Shamrock Stringer is, and it's at the co-op meeting. And he looks over it. I can't decide if it was Stringer or Shamrock who decided to keep reading the book of like how to conduct a meeting or whatever the hell it was. But they keep referencing it. Like, if you'll recall, at the, I think it's the beginning of the season where they're at the funeral parlor. And um, I can't remember if it's this season or the... If it, oh, that reminds me. I wanted to do a bit to open up the show. Um, I sent it to well, you. Well, wait now, Mark. <laughs> I said, oh, no, fuck it. We're doing the bit. But is it this season or the previous season where um, they're talking about like they're, they're talking about getting everyone to sign on the uh, getting all the other drug organizations to come in on the package and share territory. And and they're like chair recognizes. They have to keep saying chair recognizes because if people right. ask questions. And right. fucking Pook goes, does the chair recognize that we're going to look like a bunch of bitches? <laughs> hey, Jesse, <laughs> pull up your messenger for a second. and go uh, to I have I it right you. here in front of me. Okay. Who am uh, I playing the part of? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, you're slim. Okay. All right. Ready? You ready? Yeah, All go. Right, here we go. Boss, I reached out to Black Donnie. Okay, spit it out, man. Listen, stop fucking double talking me. Black Donnie said he ain't having any of it. Said Brother Muzon put a hex on all of us. What about Peacock? Peacock went and hired out with some Dominicans. What about Eggy Mule? Eggy locked up, caught a nickel with feds for a pistol. How about Shorty Boyd? Shorty Boyd went and cleaned his whole act up. Yeah, I know. Fucked us all up. What we got? Soldier you sent at us, Cuddy, he gonna work out, but the rest of them dudes, I don't know. I listen, Juicy J. You about to earn your fucking keep around here. Heard? 
You go out, get Cuddy, get the best of the rest, and put a heart in a Marlowe. <laughs> Sorry. That uh, whole, I don't know how much of that was fucking improvised. Uh, <laughs> that is some great time. What about Eggie Mule? What about Peacock? Eggie Mule? Eggie Shorty, Mule. <laughs> Shorty Boyd cleaned his whole act up. Don't you understand? I should have came in here as Eggie Mule tonight. Not <laughs> uh, and featuring fucking Eggie Mule. All right. Eggie Mule. <laughs> Another nickname for good old Chesty Starcher. <laughs> I love that bit of dialogue. Just like, oh, they, the, honestly, that could have gone on for another 10 minutes. And it's just all random, stupid ass names. <laughs> just random names. They're just throwing out. What about there. donkey balls? What? <laughs> he caught one in the leg. He's still what? resting up. What about Shamrock and Shenanigans? You know, <laughs> got oh, mixed up funny. with the Greek. Took he took a fucking dirt bath. Is what he did. The Greek. The anyway, Greek. um, so yes, Avon gets out of prison this season, and he comes back to see. And by by this point, and this is something that McNulty brings up when he starts telling him, Stringer's the bank. Stringer's developing. He's got. They've made so much money. They've cleaned so much money. That their money, their clean money now makes money. Right. They don't have to see another package for as long as they live. They, you know, I, I think at one point Stringer says, we'll never spend the money we've already made. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, and so Avon, much like, much like McNulty, what else is there? I, I don't know anything else. I don't know. That's I don't know how to enjoy yeah. my wealth. I'm, I'm just a drug dealer. And like, it's an interesting thing because Avon's not stupid. And Avon is not necessarily a tremendously young man. He's not he's not particularly um that's uh, the word I'm looking for. Like he, he's not somebody that's just like uh impulsive is the word I'm looking for. He's not particularly impulsive. Okay. He's he is thoughtful, but it's it's, it's just an interesting thing that he Despite all of that, despite some level of insight that he has, despite some wisdom, despite some age on him, he's like, I, I have nothing else. I know nothing else. You know, they well, talk about this in season one about like this is general. D'Angelo brings this up. It's just generations of drug dealing. This is all these people know. So even yeah. when they're successful, even when they don't have to do it anymore, what is a life without purpose? And when your purpose has and always will be drug dealing, it's kind of hard to see something else to do. And that's exactly what Stringer wants for him. He's like, please, like, I want to make condos. I want to, I want to run, you know, I want to be on the city council. I want to leave all of this behind. Come with me, brother. And Avon's yeah. like, no, I, I, I would prefer to kill Marlo and everybody that looks like him and take my corners back. And Stringer is fucking beside himself. Just doesn't under dude. I have been where Stringer is. <laughs> We're just like, <clears throat> I I have the better way. I I have the sight. Right. See this this is my third eye, and I have third the sight. Eye. I know the right. answers. I know the way. And I am surrounded by people. Fucking surrounded by people. It was like, nope, I only know this one way to do it. <laughs> and that's all we're doing. And you're right. like, why? The only defense that I have for Avon is. <clears throat> He's comfortable where he's at. I understand that. I actually empathize because it's really tough sometimes to step out of your comfort zone. Oh, as do you, Mister Life Three Hundred and Sixty. Hey, <laughs> listen, I left the house today. Oh my! God. I got in my car. 
<laughs> I drove. I was at least five miles from this house. Did you were you uh, able to but, find your way back? I, I'm here. <laughs> this is my house. Okay. Um, the uh, this is my tablecloth. This is gonna pan right, and he's actually at a fucking Seven Eleven right now. <laughs> now, now. How do I get home? Somebody help me. <laughs> broadcasting uh, live from the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> <laughs> but I empathize with him. I really mm. do. Like Avon is comfortable where he's at. As dangerous yeah. as the game is, he's comfortable where he's at, and he also knows not to trust what's outside of his comfort zone. Right, and that is solidified and actually proven to be a very good reason for Avon not to trust anybody when Stringer runs into his problems with Clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clay, crap, what was his last name? I can't remember his name. Um, Clay Davis. Clay Davis, thank you. Played by the um, great she, she Isaiah Whitlock. Yes. So, I mean, Avon knows that outside of this, yeah, they may be able to do a little bit more, but really just totally investing all of everything that he has in that mm-hmm. Stringer made the mistake. Stringer's a rookie at what he's doing. He may act like, you know, he, he may <laughs> that, have that exchange. He has when he's like telling Clay, he's ready to run as like a major, I guess, major developer and right. Clay and Clay's like, you're not, <clears throat> you're still bitching about <clears throat> the money that you spend. You still have a yeah. gangster mentality. You're not ready exactly. for this. And then, um, <clears throat> and then he's like, "All right, we'll go see. We'll go turn. We'll go talk to the faucet. We're gonna talk to the goose. What goose? The goose that lays the golden eggs." Mm-hmm. And you gotta so listen to me, when, String. When when Maurice Levy tells him, "Did he tell you that he he it was something about the rainmaker?" He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He rainmakered you. Uh, yeah, he basically said that you were he was gonna make it rain, mm-hmm. and when it doesn't rain. There's an excuse for it, but when it does, it's all him. Um, yeah, he had his hand in his pocket, and String was like immediately like putting a hit out on him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wanting to put a hit out on Clay, and uh, even Clay Slim, Davis. And even Slim Charles is like, yeah, no, I'm not attacking a state senator. Yeah, Fuck that's off. called assassination. <laughs> uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, Look, it I is one you. thing to bust a cap and mic my time pots. It is a whole <laughs> other kettle of fish to be shooting right. state senators. But yeah, you can see right there what you're talking about is the division mm-hmm. between Avon and, and Stringer. But there's so much more. I mean, Avon uh, finally gets to learn that Stringer was behind the killing of D. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, my goodness, that's going to weigh heavy on you. Um, yeah. you know, you, and then you have to keep that. You have to keep oh, that a secret from your own sister, that boy's line, own mother. That line is just like, you know, you, I don't think you were ever, what is he? I don't think you were ever, you're not smart enough for them out there and you're not hard enough for this right here. And shrink is like, I killed your nephew, but hard enough for that motherfucker. Yeah. And Avon's yeah, like, see. excuse me, partner. Mm-hmm. So it's just you got to over this course of season three, you get to watch this really solid friendship completely fall apart to the point where and, and it's not just falling apart. Avon doesn't understand where String is coming from and has watched him fuck up. You know, everything from you don't give away territory, you don't share territory. This co-op idea of yours is worth the shit. There was another way to do this. And they're like, you're not selling me on any of this by your inability to get your condos made get this clay davis guy to do what he's supposed to do for you everything you're doing is terrible (laughs) that's avon's point of view (laughs) prove me wrong 
And Stringer is looking at Avon going, dude, we have so much money. There's no reason for us to be gangsters anymore. We should ascend. Yeah. And when he won't do it, when he's like, when he he just feels like he's dragging Avon along, he's like, fuck it, I'll just have you arrested again. I don't even care anymore. I'm done with this. I, I am cannot, done. Yeah. I am done trying to explain two plus two to a fucking moron. Right. <laughs> you know, that yeah, is why it, they are at loggerheads. They, that dissolving, that dissolution mm. of yeah. their union and to watch String, Stringer go to Colvin mm-hmm. with that information, like here's the safe house. Mm-hmm. And then McNulty laying that affidavit or, or no, I'm sorry, the warrant, yeah. laying that warrant out in front of him and says, take a long look, read it slow. And <laughs> there it is, you know, Avon reads that uh, after Stringer. they do the raid on Avon's, yeah, it was Stringer that put uh, gave him the information. Uh, yeah, that was a, it was, uh, you know, when you watch Omar and Stringer mm-hmm. have their final moments. Uh, Get on with it, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> some good stuff mm-hmm. some real good stuff. and i think that also is another reason why i think this is probably my favorite season so far is the fact that we get those two finally having it out and mm-hmm. omar has his revenge if you will um stringer made some bad calls you know given the go-ahead to shoot well, somebody <clears throat> on a sunday on a sunday well that's what avon tells him it's just like you know I understand you were trying to run this like a business, but even said he has that one line about like, this is about your fucking business class. Right. You know, look, nine out of 10 times, I kind of take Stringer aside. How much money, how, how much money do you need? How much illegal money do you need? You're making straight money, like ascend, evolve, yeah, be right. something else. Sure. And so I, 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 I sympathize with Stringer's point of view. But I also see that one piece of what Avon's talking about because because by the same token, you chose to be a criminal. Certain things you got to do as a criminal. You don't want to do those things. Don't be a criminal. You know, it's interesting that they wrote it the way they did because they because they didn't take the path of why doesn't Stringer just walk away? Like at the end where they where they raid his apartment after he's died, and and he's seeing like it's it's like an upper class apartment. Oh yeah, it's very condo, whatever the fuck he's living in. He's like, yeah, Yeah. very posh. Um, He's got like samurai swords. He's got all these great literature, you know, Sun Tzu and all this other stuff. And fucking McNulty's looking around, going, "The fuck was I chasing?" Right. (laughs) He couldn't believe it. And you often wonder, like, why, why Stringer didn't walk away. And and it it makes me think, as I say that out loud, about something D'Angelo said. Like, nobody walks away from this. Nobody. Right. Which makes what he does with Cuddy so interesting because he lets Cuddy just walk away. Like, right. Yeah, fine. Lots of luck to you. Yeah. And I think even everyone was surprised. that He just shoot Cuddy in the back as he's walking out of the funeral home. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jesse. Yeah. It's time. Your top moments. Okay. Well, I, I don't really have a list since I just finished oh, okay. the uh, series. Let me, go, let me go ahead and get out of here then. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's close up the top. I don't think so, you funny guy. <laughs> That's the second joke. I've got, I've got one moment we did not discuss. Mm-hmm. Can you guess what it is? Well, no one takes their cock out in this season, so I'm out of I'm out of ideas. <laughs> uh, Prez. Which part? 
the part where he shoots a fucking cop. Oh, meh. <laughs> what? That wasn't that big of a deal. Like, I mean, press I mean, this guy, this this wonderkind, the guy who's like now on the wire team, and like you know, we were so excited that look at him go, and then he goes out. There's a call while they're getting Chinese. And the next thing you know, he shoots an undercover cop in the fucking head. I'll tell you what. It does give way to a great line from this season. He was like, I'm under indictment for failure to identify myself as a police officer. I feel like that's been my whole career. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, I, I mean... What was it? The other thing is like that he gets a, a grand jury indictment, and it's just like three, three out of four, three, three out of seven to think I'm a racist asshole. Four out of think of four out of seven think I'm just an asshole. Right? Yeah. The other, yeah, that was uh, Freeman. Lester mm -hmm. said, "Well, just look on the bright side. Three of them just think you're an asshole." <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that was a that was a big moment. I remember uh, when we were watching it, I forgot all about mm -hmm. that. I forgot that he had shot somebody. And I guess because you know, I know what happens to Pre. First of all, it isn't like when Kima got shot, where you know where it's a known quantity throughout the show. You're sympathetic towards Kima. She gets really fucked up. You know, it's it's a meaningful scene. Prez shooting the cop is a setup to season four. It, it just sure. it doesn't resonate with me as much. Okay, well, it's kind of a big deal to me. I'm sitting there watching Prez. You know, he's enjoying what he's doing. He's actually doing some real police work, putting some, uh, drawing some lines to some criminals mm -hmm. and doing the wire. And then, you know, all that promise just shot down in one night. Yeah, uh, now he's going to teach, teach probability to young black children. I would have known this back when I was watching it in 2004. <laughs> I would have no idea. I'd been like, oh, damn, Prez. How are you going to do Prez like No, this? not oh. Prez. Not the guy who blinded a kid in fucking season one. He's fucking, no. He's redeeming himself. You're right, Jesse. He certainly knows how to organize a fucking tech board. Look look at, yeah, look at those push pins, Mark. <laughs> this is, they're very that. organized. Actually, at one point, he had a fucking ruler out, if I remember correctly. Like, he had a ruler out, and I was like, are you fucking serious? A ruler? What the hell? Yeah. Is that some uh, kind of department look, regulation? i tell you, him organizing in the cold open, him organizing the thumbtack board to walk the line is fucking great. <laughs> it was. It was good stuff. Um, I mean, uh, we get... Uh, side note, uh, our district attorney or prosecuting attorney, however it is, mm -hmm. um, and, and our uh, now major... Cedric Daniels are seeing each other. Um, I can't yes. remember if they were seeing at the, each other at the end of last season or not, but no, they're definitely that started the, in season three. This ending montage of him having uh, relations with her uh, was <laughs> Cuddy was beating on a bag while he was <laughs> so pounding was that meat. <laughs> Rawr. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean that's the only other real kind of thing I want to talk about that uh, or I wanted to bring up. So. Uh, you know, Bubs shows up. Didn't say a lot about Bubs. Bubs loses his friend to some. Uh, uh, yeah. He's the first body that's found in this. Uh, well, Johnny I gets say first body. He Johnny overdoes body. it. Yep. Yes, he does. But yeah, man, it's a good season. Like I said, I really did like season three. I think it's one of my favorite, especially the social experiment of Hamsterdam. I think that is a. I, I'm glad we started off with that because I think that's the big piece. Sure. Obviously, coming out of the season. So. All right. Well. 
that is our hour-long-ish discussion of The Wire Season 3. This is less a review and more of like a recap. This is just like, I mean, when stuff comes up that I that that <clears throat> I want to talk about as an issue, you know, like we did with Amsterdam, but the rest of it, I'm just noticing as as I think back about this conversation about season two, it's just like I like this part. Like that's that's so not us, but that's what this has become. Remember like, this like, line? Remember, remember this line? line? Remember that? Oh, this, that was cool. Like we just both turned into fucking Chris Farley. Oh, we uh, talked about arcs and <laughs> and the important things of these characters. I think we did a fine job. All we got. His bodies, right? <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Um, as far as season four, if you liked me and Jesse, <laughs> remember when the wire? <laughs> remember the wire? Uh, November Pembridge Farm remembers. The next the wire member berries cast is November 16th at nine o'clock, unless I have a hot date or something, in which case I'm going to change it because, you know, whatever. But um, and then the wires, we conclude just before New Year's with the with the season five of the wire, December 29th. So check that out. Um, as far as uncharted territory for me at that point, because I have not got past halfway through fourth season. So, oh, wait till you see season five. Oh boy, dinosaurs! Oh, um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> the wire, time travel. Um, oh my gosh, it's gonna be your favorite season ever, Jesse. They're I've heard say, of jumping the shark. I don't know what the hell that would be. The best part of season five is when they save the clock tower. Ah, uh, uh, ah! <laughs> uh. I know. Uh, no. All right. Um, what do we do this week on the Rider Legend Broadcasting Network? Well, Sean Comer came back ever so briefly. To talk Hellraiser 2022, currently exclusively on Hulu, my, myself Ooh. and Robert Winfrey. Was it a good um, movie? I haven't listened to the review, but did you like it? It's okay. Um, Alexis Haina and Andrew Orozco from the MCU's Bleeding Edge and Geek News Network, uh, they reviewed Werewolf by Night. Alexis is doing a great job with the TV parties. We really appreciate her because I have shit to do and I don't want to talk about this crap anymore. Um, <laughs> All of a sudden, so, he's got a life. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> I was happy to pawn off television reviews on Alexis. Um, uh, let's see. Um, tomorrow, speaking of Alexis. Now, I just said that, but I'm actually going to break my own rule here. I'm going to review season one of She-Hulk and ask me why, Jesse. Oh, I would like to know why you're going to break your own rule and talk about the season, of, the first season of She-Hulk. Because there's something to talk about. Um, okay. And that and that is this like online fight over this show. It's anti man. It's not anti man. It's funny. It's not funny. About the only thing I agree with in terms of criticism is the CGI is fucking god awful. Um, but there is a conversation to be had about what is actually anti man and what is just something that you don't like as a man. There's a difference, and I'm going to talk about it. This was giving me Shira vibes. Do you remember that? Ooh, remember right, yeah. when I got all hot and bothered because they, you know, DreamWorks was putting out a Shira cartoon that was LGBTQ positive and oh parents were God. fucking just slipping their fucking lids. Used a bunch of letters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they made Shira for the gays, Jesse. <laughs> them them gays. <laughs> And, yeah, uh, I've heard a lot of discussion about the She-Hulk. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. I was on uh, our good buddy 
Yeah, almost called him. Help me out, thank you. I, I almost called him Josh Calandros, who has not been a part of this network in about I don't know Jeff 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Sloboda. Um, yes, I was on the on that show there last week talking about that with him, and yeah, yeah. there's uh. Quite yeah, a, Jeff, well, a, you were there. Jeff and I almost got into a fucking fist fight over episode was it seven, where he was like, "Every man was emasculated." Yeah, that's why I need to spend an hour now explaining why that's not the case. Also, take a drink every time I say there's more to Daredevil than Born Again. You fucking neckbeards. Ooh, <laughs> coming in Ooh. hot. Ooh, yeah, street level star chair. Daredevil had more than one story arc. <laughs> man. Hot take. Uh, it's not a hot take. It's the fucking truth. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I will. Uh, I'll take all my hot takes and I will pour them out like someone's overstuffed purse tomorrow at noon. Me and Alexis will be talking She-Hulk this weekend. We've got some canned ham for you. The Long Road to Ruin on the Crow movies. One good one and three. What the fuck? Next week. We've got uh, Ronnie Adams and I will be doing a long road to ruin for the of Michael Myers trilogy, which is Halloween four, five and six, I believe. Plus H2O because, you know, four movies in an hour. Sure. Why not? And then Ronnie Adams, Jason Teasley, Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing Halloween ends, which will be day and date on Peacock. Uh, not a real service. Not a real network. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alexis Haina. We'll be reviewing Midnight Club, I believe, with Robert Winfrey on uh, Wednesday the 19th. <clears throat> and that's all for me. Thanks. I'm driving. Jesse, I hear you're unified. You're dropping oh some unity. Goodness. Unity. U-N-I-T-Y. So, you got it, baby. Yep. So, yeah, uh, the Unspoken Issues podcast did a four-episode spectacular. Just finished up today. Uh it was a little bit of an intro episode, about 15 minutes long there on the 10th of October. And then uh, the 11th through the 13th, all 18 chapters were discussed in three different episodes there of Valiant's Unity. So if you like Valiant comics from back in, 90, in the 90s, this was at an event uh, that was uh, done by Valiant Comics in 1992 one of the largest, uh, one of the biggest events, and uh, according to Dean Compton, one of the best events that happened back in the 90s. So check that out if you like Valiant Comics. We had a great time discussing it. We went through all 18 chapters, tried to keep it as quick, but as interesting as possible. Uh, also, you can check out myself and Mark Radlich this coming Monday. We're going to be talking World War Three. That is correct. DC's World War III. And we said, let's talk about Black Adam. And then we decided, let's talk about Martian Manhunter. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what the conversation was about. What, uh, and then right, we were just Jesse, looking. Here's yes. what everyone really wants to know. They'd like to hear about the gag reel. Oh, it's on there. Mm, it is our, on there. Mm, is, there is, it a big, <laughs> is it a big deep gag reel? One minute, 30 seconds. Nice. <laughs> High five. <laughs> High five. Yeah. All right. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, that's coming up Monday on the Source Material podcast. That should be dropping there. And that's all I have. I'm sure I'm going to be recording a bunch of stuff here at some point soon here for Unspoken Issues and the Source Material podcast as well. So keep an eye out on the feed. If you like comics, that's where we're at. You got to get me on back so we can do Slayer, by the way. Yes, that's right. Christmas is right around the corner. That's right. 
You have to. You're gonna have to take time away from my social life, my very full social life, to get me to record with you for an hour. Mm, pencil me in somewhere. I'll I'll pencil you in. All right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Put oh, you right on my goodness. naughty list. All right. So that, get me out of here. <laughs> that, that's that's enough of me. That's enough of me flirting with you tonight. Just call me Juicy J. <laughs> I and will. We'll call it a night. <laughs> what, what was the other one? Eggy Mule? <laughs> Eggy Mule. Yes. Call me Eggy Mule, please. All right. All right. For Eggy Mule, I'm a complete asshole. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>